There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA, the counter-extremism project is accusing the government of Qatar of attempting to whitewash its relationship with Hamas. In addition to allowing Hamas to have its corporate office in Doha, Fran Townsend, president of the counter-extremism project, says, In addition to that, Qatar funds to the tune of several hundred million dollars a year Hamas in Gaza. And according to Townsend, former U.S. Homeland Security advisor, We now see what that money has been spent on, which is not education and hospitals, but rather building tunnels and accumulating weapons. Townsend says the people living in Gaza, Look at the horrific conditions in Gaza and the way that the Palestinians in Gaza are, have to live. And then you look at the leadership who's in Qatar. They're living in luxury. The counter-extremism project says Hamas should turn those leaders over to face terrorism charges. That's coming up on this episode of Target USA. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. December 7th, two months since the war between Israel and Hamas exploded to a new level. It started with Hamas killing 1,200 Israeli civilians inside Israel on the 7th of October. Now, since that time, there have been tens of thousands of people that have died, and it all tracks back to Hamas. Now, major organizations, politicians, and diplomats are calling on the government of Qatar to distance itself from Hamas. In fact, they're calling on them to throw Hamas's leaders out of Qatar and essentially allow them to be arrested on terrorism charges. One of those groups is the Counter-Extremism Project. I spoke with their president, Fran Townsend, about this. Fran, your organization sent, basically, it wasn't something you sent to the government of Qatar, but it was a statement that you made that sent a very strong message a couple days ago to Qatar related to the situation in Israel and Gaza. And um, the crux of what I read and got from that message was uh, Qatar needs to step up and essentially stop sheltering the leadership of Hamas. Could you, I guess, more eloquently explain what it is that your message and your statement said? Sure. And this the statement this week really built on an, uh, an op-ed piece we had in the Washington Post, uh, I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal earlier this uh, last month, that says, look, if you think back to post 9-11, and the U.S.'s message was, if you harbor a terrorist, if you give them shelter, um, we're going to consider that material support to a terrorist organization and treat you as we would a terror organization. 
bringing that forward to Qatar, Qatar has long housed uh, a Hamas office, including its leadership, uh, Khalid Mashal and Ismail Haniyeh, both of whom in the immediate aftermath of October the 7th made statements of praise for the attack on Israel. Um, and what we're saying is this is, Qatar has the privilege of being considered a major non-NATO ally. Um, that's a label that is meant to connote sort of the strength of the relationship. We have a military base there. We have a, you know, a long standing relationship with them. And the notion, what offended me, what offended the organization was, you have this major non-NATO ally harboring uh, the leadership of a terror organization that conducted an attack against our major ally in Israel. Um, that in addition to that, Qatar funds to the tune of several hundred million dollars a year, Hamas in Gaza. And we now see what that money has been spent on, which is not education and hospitals, but rather building tunnels and accumulating weapons. Um, and Qatar ought to be held accountable for that. Um, they ought to be given the opportunity to correct what they've done, that is turn over these um, the Hamas leadership and stop funding, um, or they ought to be held accountable. Well, that was the thing I was going to ask you. What is it that uh, you think Qatar should do at this stage? Yeah, I think, and I think Qatar realizes now, in the wake of the uh, the war in Gaza, they're they're, they're going to face enormous pressure to close that Hamas office. Um, it's interesting because when the Prime Minister of Qatar was called on this, he keeps saying that he he opened that office in coordination with the U.S. government. I just we've just never been able to find anybody who says, "Yeah, I talked to them and said that was okay." Um, and so I think they recognize they're going to be forced not to uh, house, allow them to live there and house that office. So what about the leadership, the people that are associated with uh, Hamas's leadership that live there? In addition to closing the office, should other action be taken? Absolutely. Um, you know, not only are they living there, when you look at the horrific conditions in Gaza and the way that, that Palestinians in Gaza are have to live, and then you look at the leadership who's in Qatar, they're living in luxury. I mean, you know, we've released and seen, pu made public huge hotel bills and luxury hotels and, and spa appointments for these Hamas leaders, while average Palestinians are living in Gaza. Um, and suffering. So they ought to have to, just as you would with any international criminal, they ought to have to turn them over to face justice for their, their participation in, in these terror crimes. They can turn them over to Israel, they can turn them over to the United States, or they can turn them over into the International Criminal Court. But these guys all ought to face justice. And looking at what it is that Qatar is doing that I think got your attention, the Doha Forum. Um, that doesn't seem to stack up in your eyes, at least based on what I read, as what it's supposed to be. It looks as though it's a smokescreen. Is that right? That's right. Look, they've been doing this for years where they they pay people to come. Literally, they pay them to come in. They hold this big public event um, talking about the global problems of the day. Um, but this is 
to call it what it is, this is a PR event for them um, and sort of whitewashing their support for groups like Hamas. And so in our state, in the Counter Extremism Project statement this week, we called on anyone who's attending there uh, to use that opportunity while they're there to call for, for Qatar to close the Hamas office and to turn over the leadership to face justice. So clearly Hamas has friends in high places, friends Absolutely. that have money. Who are they getting this money from? How are they able to live this way? So it's clear that the other major financial sponsor here is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, we've tracked flights from the leadership of Hamas going from Qatar and private planes over to Tehran and coming back to Qatar. Um, that's their major sponsor. We know that the Iranians are the largest single state sponsor of terror, not just Hamas, but also Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, and they provide weapons, they provide military training. Um, there's no way a group like Hamas could have pulled off the military attack they did on October 7th. Um, it was a tactical success for them. Um, they approached from air, land, and sea. Um, they were able to get around uh, Israeli communications surveillance. Um, there's no way they could have done that without really sophisticated military training. Um, and that could only have come from Iran. Iran is a dangerous entity. And we've heard that many times from the US government, from US allies. And, you know, in terms of the U.S., we've heard it from both Democrats and Republicans across mm -hmm. the spectrum. And I think, you know, probably firsthand just how dangerous they are, because if I remember correctly, you were among a group of Americans in I think it was France um, right. some years ago that the Islamic uh, Republic of Iran actually, I believe, tried to hire somebody to kill you is is am I off on this? Is that do I remember this correctly? You sure do. We were in Paris for a rally that was being held by a group of dissidents, Iranian dissidents, um, and it was not just me. There was um, John Bolton was among the group. There was a group of notable Americans, um, prominently outspoken about the bad conduct and behavior of the government of Iran. Um, and they hired someone, they had someone under the guise of diplomatic cover, uh, organize a plot to plant an explosive device at that rally. Um, that individual was arrested and prosecuted. Um, and then in a deal uh, cut with the Netherlands, the Netherlands returned that individual so he didn't face prison time in, in the Netherlands. What does that tell you, that action then, what does that tell you, considering Iran is still pretty much dialed into the same kind of behavior and ideology that they have been for years, especially since the killing of uh, Qassam Soleimani? They seem to have doubled down on that. What is what you know about what they've been willing to do in the past and what they are doing with Hamas now? What does that tell you about the picture that Israel, Gaza, the U.S., the rest of the world, Qatar is facing in this entity. Yeah. So probably the most egregious, as you say, they've not only doubled down, They've, uh, to your point, J.J., they've gotten much more aggressive. Um, so we know because the U.S. government has made public, they've gathered intelligence 
that they're actually assassination plots to kill former Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, um, and a number, a handful of others. These are former U.S. government officials, and these assassination plots are to kill them wherever they find them, including inside the United States. Um, each of these potential targets got briefings, protective briefings from the FBI, um, and the notion that they would um, brazenly plot to kill an American, a former American official on U.S. soil tells you something about uh, the level of depravity and the, the willingness, the, the ends they're willing to go to to achieve their means. Yeah, that's pretty significant. Pretty, pretty scary as well. Back to the original question and to end it on this note, um, looking at what you've done, what you said, and that was a pretty strong message that you sent and the language, looking at the language in the message that the counter extremism project sent to Qatar, um, it, I am sure, got their attention. Have they responded to you in any way or have you seen any response from anyone? So they've not responded to us directly. Um, I think they find us to be an annoyance and an irritation. Um, their ambassador here in the United States, as we've generated more congressional interest, that's harder for them to ignore. They can try and ignore a nonprofit, but not members of Congress. And so you'll see if you look on social media on X, um, members of Congress have called them out for the Qatar for their behavior in terms of giving, providing safe haven uh, to Hamas leaders and financial support to the group. And so you'll see there where the ambassador, the, the Qatari ambassador to the United States is pretty defensive. Um, and they point to their role in negotiating hostage releases, um, which is, look, the hostage releases are a good thing, but let's keep in mind the reason that they have that leverage is because this is a group they fund. They basically are owners of this group. And so, yes, of course, they can put pressure on them to release hostages. Um, we're calling out their bad behavior that underlies their ability to do this. That's Fran Townsend, the former U.S. Homeland Security Advisor and current president of the Counter-Extremism Project. Now to the other part of this story, the active and um, current part of this war between Israel and Hamas. A conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus with the Israeli Defense Forces about the developments of today. Lieutenant Colonel Conricus, um, we've heard um, today that there have been some developments regarding Yahya Sinwar, who is the Hamas Gaza chief. Um, what can you tell us about that situation? Well, Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Def and many other senior Hamas terrorists are wanted men. They're dead men walking, and it's a matter of time before we get our hands on them. Uh, they are a very important part, perhaps even crucial, to the Hamas regime in Gaza. And uh, since our goals in this war are to dismantle Hamas and get rid of Hamas once and for all, then uh, getting our hands on Yichas and Wav is very important. Uh, our troops are now operating in the hometown of Yichya Sinwar. Uh, we are near the location of his house. And uh, based on the understanding that obviously he's probably not staying in his house 60 days after the war uh, started, 
Uh, we are operating above and below ground in order to get our hands on him and other senior Hamas terrorists. So the assumption then, as Prime Minister Netanyahu said, and also Admiral Hagari, I think, said a little bit earlier, the operating assumption is that he's underground. Uh, is there anything you can share about the whereabouts without giving that away? I know that's difficult to do. Yeah, we know that all Hamas seniors, they hide underneath the civilian population. Uh, usually the more senior, the deeper they go. Uh, they have uh, special tunnels uh, protected deep, deep underground uh, where the most senior terrorists are. And uh, Hamas in the Yichya Sinwar is very, very senior, the most senior Hamas terrorist in Gaza. So one can assume, and we're working under the assumption, that it will be a hard target to find. But at the in the end, we will find him, whether it is troops or by reaching his location with other types of ordnance and means at the end of the day, at the end of this war, uh, we will either capture or kill him. Lieutenant Colonel Conricus, you've been instrumental in demonstrating to us in the press since this conflict began, at least at this level, um, some of the tactics and, and a lot of the uh, tools and spaces that Hamas and its terrorists have utilized in this campaign. When you say that he's one of the seniors and he's probably deeper underground, I know you've said before that some of these tunnels may go stories, several stories below ground. Is Do you have an estimate on how deep these things may go? Yeah, to, to explain that, then I'll, I'll give a little bit of a longer answer. There's different levels of tunnels in Gaza. There are short tactical combat tunnels which Hamas operatives use in order to relocate themselves tactically within the battlefield so that they can uh, emerge in an alley or in the uh, back uh, backside of a house, emerge, engage with our troops, usually firing RPGs towards our tanks and then disappear back into the tunnel uh, into relative safety only to appear on the other side of the street or in a different house. Uh, Hamas has a lot of those tunnels, and we have exposed many of those tunnels as our troops have been advancing in northern Gaza and in other areas of uh, the Gaza Strip. Actually, we're talking about that we have exposed more than 800 tunnel shafts of different sizes and different um, purposes. We have destroyed more than 500 of them. We've dismantled, and there's still a few that we are investigating and uh, learning from. The other type of tunnel uh, would be the uh, uh, long uh, long endurance or long time, uh, time span location tunnel where Hamas operatives simply use that as a bunker, which allows them to stay underground away from Israeli Air Force bombs and basically to live and uh, operate and run operations from there. And these are typically the tunnels that battalion commanders and brigade commanders have at their disposal. They are typically located underneath civilian neighborhoods, uh, preferably, according to Hamas structure, under densely populated neighborhoods, lots of civilians above. Uh, and we've seen that in Jabalia, in Shati, in uh, Zaytun, and in many other 
locations. Many of those have been targeted by the IDF and many of those indeed today are filled with soil, rubble, and lots of bodies of uh, dead Hamas terrorists. And the third type of tunnel would be the smuggling tunnels that go in from Egypt towards Gaza, uh, towards uh, Rafah, uh, which are intended, of course, to bring in all of the <clears throat> weapons that Hamas has been able to stockpile over the years. Yichya <clears throat> uh, Sinwar, we can assume, is in... He and other seniors is uh, hiding in uh, deep tunnels. We're talking about dozens of feet below the ground, uh, maybe even 100 uh, feet below the ground. Uh, it depends on the location and the, how close they are to um, groundwater. But they are very deep, the tunnels. And, um, you know, the deeper they are, the more protected they are from uh, um, aerial ordnance, aerial bombardment. And uh, we know that uh, Yechia Sinwar takes his security very seriously and uh, I think is uh, quite disciplined when it comes to staying underground and continuously hiding from our operations. One of the things, speaking of underground <clears throat> and these tunnels, we heard a couple of days ago that there was some thought being given to using seawater to flood these tunnels. Is that is that a, is that a viable option? Is that something that's being considered? Yeah, you know, we're looking at different uh, tactical solutions to uh, deal with this challenge. Uh, I know that other militaries have uh, dealt with tunnels on the battlefield, and of course it's not new to us. We've seen it in Lebanon, we've seen it in Gaza before, but the scope and the amount of tunnels and how um, elaborate the tunnel system is and how well it, it facilitates the movement and the existence of enemy combatants, it's quite uh, quite a challenge. And uh, for that, we're looking at various means how to, uh, instead of having those tunnels as a challenge, how to turn that into a challenge and a deficit for the enemy and basically uh, turn them into mass graves. And there's more than one way to do that. You referenced one of them, but it's not the only one. And we're looking at different uh, technological solutions. We're also learning as we go. We're experimenting with different solutions, different ways of dealing with the tunnels. There's the old tested and proven way of simply blowing the tunnels up or blowing the shafts up and making the tunnels basically unaccessible. Uh, and then there's other ways as well. Uh, I think at the end of the war, uh, probably we will be able to expose some of the techniques that we've been using uh, in order to deal with this very elaborate tunnel network that Hamas obviously has spent hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, working on over the years. By the way, all of the cement that has been poured into these tunnels and holds the tunnels up, basically uh, the, the the structure, all of that cement is uh, international aid that was intended to uh, build roads and schools and hospitals and mosques for the people of Gaza. Hamas has diverted that and uses it in order to build their infrastructure. And speaking of um, the efforts that you're putting out to address the threat that these Hamas terrorists pose in Gaza and beyond. Um, give us a sense, if you will, of what your your operation your operational uh, posture is now since the hostage releases for now 
have been ended and essentially you're back in an operational combat uh, mode? Yeah, we still have 138 Israeli hostages uh, being held by Hamas. Uh, 81 Israeli hostages have been released in total. Uh, and uh, we have women, children, men, elderly people, civilians and military, both women and men, uh, being held by Hamas. Every day that goes by, their situation deters. We know that there are some of the civilians there that are being held hostage are in urgent need of medical attention. And I think it's an atrocity that international aid organizations, specifically the Red Cross, have not yet either been able to or been adamant enough in order to gain access to those hostages and provide them with what they are entitled to under international humanitarian law, medical attention, and to see uh, how their situation is. And um, we continue fighting. Uh, there's the situation on the ground where we are operating in northern Gaza, still with a lot of troops, and continue to uh, engage the enemy and deal blow after blow to the Hamas infrastructure. And we have continued and expanded operations in southern Gaza. Uh, we will complete operations once Hamas surrenders or is totally defeated. Uh, and once we can uh, verify that there is no military threat uh, emanating from Gaza towards Israeli civilians, and to make sure, of course, that the October 7th massacre never happens again. Uh, and of course, at the end of the day, we are committed to getting all of our hostages back, be it through diplomacy or through other means. At the end of this war, they must all be returned uh, back to Israel. That is our commitment and part of our mission. Two more brief questions. Um, we heard yesterday and the day before as well about some horrific mutilations of uh, women who were raped and mutilated in many different ways. And I know this is hard for people to listen to, but I think it's important if you could share some insight into what took place just briefly. Yeah, there's... Uh first-hand te testimonies uh, of uh, survivors, both from the Nova Music Festival and from Israeli communities, who basically tell first-hand testimonies of what they saw. Uh, a gang rape of uh, eight or ten Hamas terrorists that were raping a young Israeli woman, and after they finished raping her, they shot her in the head and uh, many examples, very graphic, and I'm sorry that I have to say this, of uh, uh, body parts of women that were cut off, breasts, uh, of uh, gunfire towards the genitals uh, of women, and extremely horrible sights, all documented by uh, first responders, uh, medical staff, and by volunteers who came there in order to uh, collect bodies and bring them to burial. And there's a, a, a very large investigation going on led by the Israeli police that is uh, uh, concentrating or collecting all of these testimonies and all of the evidence. Um, and the terrorists that we were able to apprehend in Israel are going to be brought uh, for trial by the Israeli authorities for what they did. Um, and I think it is very important that people actually hear about it. Uh, it's being kind of brushed aside because the things happening in Gaza are 
probably more dramatic and the visuals are more dramatic and dead victims don't speak. Uh, our dead, raped and mutilated women do not speak because they were murdered. Uh, and therefore, I think you're right. And it is important to speak about it. And it's important that institutions around the world, like UN Women and other organizations that allegedly care for uh, the rights uh, of uh, women and act in order to prevent uh, sexual violence, speak up and uh, act accordingly. Last thing, um, what message do you share considering your ongoing operations in Gaza? What message would you share to the people of Gaza, the innocent people there? What do you say to them? I say that we understand that they are suffering and that uh, times are difficult. We understand that uh, many of them are in a difficult position. Uh, they've been displaced from their homes and they're going through difficult times. We understand that. They are not our enemy and we did not launch a war um, out of uh, context. We did it because we were attacked from Gaza by Hamas uh, and Hamas is the enemy. We will continue to try our best to prevent any harm done to Palestinian civilians that are not part of the fighting and not affiliated with Hamas. Uh, we will continue to warn ahead in the areas that we're going to operate to give them enough time to evacuate. We will continue to distinguish in the best possible way between combatant and non-combatant. And we will continue to facilitate the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza in order to care for the needs of those civilians. Hopefully at the end of this war, it will be a much better situation for them, the people of Gaza, because we will rid them of this horrible terror organization uh, that has been governing Gaza for 17 years. And uh, in a few years time, I am hopeful that the situation in Gaza can and will be much better, first and foremost for us, for our security, but also for the civilians living in Gaza. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, he is a spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, the latest and most up-to-date information that we can find about the conflicts, the issues, and problems regarding U.S. national security around the world, here at home and abroad, of course. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.